Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Thanks so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Today we're going to talk about Fathers Matter and Honor Father's Day, Hong Kong protests, Oberlin, which is actually a socialist destruction. Also, socialism slowly destroys everything. And last, excuse me, last, Bernie's false freedom argument. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello and welcome again to America Can We Talk on today's first five. Yesterday was Father's Day. I hope you all had a lovely Father's Day weekend and enjoyed honoring the fathers in your life. I want to just pass along in this quick five-minute first five of this show the ideas about why fatherhood matters, and or really the evidence of why it matters. There are lots of women who end up having to raise a child or children on their own. My own grandmother raised seven children on her own because her husband abandoned her. I have family members and friends who've ended up being single moms and done a great job. The fact that single moms can do a great job, however, does not mean that fatherhood does not matter. We have a holiday in this country, Father's Day, to honor the idea that fathers' contributions to our children's lives greatly bless those lives. I'll just share some quick data with you to encourage you to support fatherhood. Uh, where we are in this country now, 24.7 million kids live in homes without their father. 39% of students in first through 12th grade classes in America are fatherless. That, that's a Department of Education statistic. Statistic: 39% of students K through 12, their one first grade through 12, live in a home without their father. Children raised in a home without a dad in the home are four times more likely to be poor, to fall into poverty, twice as likely to drop out of high school. Seven of ten high school dropouts are fatherless. Twice as likely to commit suicide. And they also are have a much higher statistical rate, uh, girls do, of promiscuity, and of, of becoming pregnant outside of wedlock, pregnant during their teen years. High school boys have a much higher instance of joining gangs, taking drugs, and getting arrested, all because they come from homes where no father is in the home. And my message about this is not to blame single moms or to criticize them. It is to inspire all of us to embrace the importance of fatherhood, to embrace a culture that values fatherhood, that recognizes that fathers have a tremendous amount to contribute to their families, to their children's lives. And we should have policies, both legal policies, government assistance programs, tax policies that encourage intact family units, that encourage people to create a home that can give their children the best likely possibility of turning out successful, turning out being able to finish high school, finish college, move through life with success. Kids need their dads. And that, my friends, is today's first five. Now, the next one I want to talk about today A lot of you probably noticed these uh, protests in Hong Kong. And I have one picture to show you. This is a massive protest in Hong Kong. And I want to just tell you uh, why this protest is happening, why this entire rebellion is happening. 
Hong Kong is a has a unique uh, kind of political identity. It was passed over from the British to the Chinese um, in a kind of protectorate mode where Hong Kong was to remain relatively autonomous for 50 years, 5-0 years. And then, I think it's in 2047, Hong Kong is supposed to then surrender that autonomy, become part of China. The point is, Hong Kong has lived pretty much under freedom for a long, long time. If you see the size of this crowd, I'm going to tell you about crowd size and this protest in Hong Kong. Hong Kong had in the streets, and Hong Kong's just one big city. Hong Kong had in the streets two million protesters. The country only has, or the, the protectorate, Hong Kong, only has seven million people. We're talking about massive protests in the streets. What they're protesting is a proposed law that the government, if you want to call it that, in Hong Kong, and it's not really in a, a government in the sense of what we think of governments. The um, leader of Hong Kong is actually is referred to as a chief executive, and she, this woman, is a loyalist to China. She's there to follow, uh, to implement China's policies in Hong Kong, and China wanted to have a new extradition law in place. To be precise, they wanted a law in place that, that made it unquestionable that if China wanted to prosecute someone who's in Hong Kong, Hong Kong would agree to send that person up to China for the prosecution. And this is an extradition treaty. We have them in many countries. We agree that we'll turn over people they want to prosecute and they turn over people that we want to prosecute. But the people in China are having none of it. This protest began because people were arguing that China, where they have no human rights, no civil rights, no free speech, people are concerned in Hong Kong that things they have been free to do, free to say in their lives in Hong Kong, will become the subject of Chinese accusation and potential prosecution. They're concerned they'll lose their free speech rights if they speak up in Hong Kong and say, you know, down with communism, down with Xi Jinping, you know, anything, whatever they would say, you know, down with Huawei, whatever they would say. They're worried that people in Hong Kong will be sent up to China for prosecution. And in China, to be clear, you can't think of the criminal justice system and the way you think of America's criminal justice system, we actually have protections. We have, we have some sense that justice usually emerges. When you're a Chinese government and you are the dictator, you really are the law. The system, they have characters in place called judges and laws in place that are called the statutes, but pretty much the Chinese party, Communist Party is in charge and everyone in Hong Kong knows that. So they're very worried about losing their free speech rights. Um, and they also, they actually talked about, they, people were interviewed on the streets of Hong Kong, you know, why are you protesting? Why is it such a big deal to have an extradition treaty? One of them said, because China is going to trump up charges. They're just going to make up stuff to force us to be flown up to China to be prosecuted. So they had this protest start, uh, and it was kind of interesting. I want to share a little bit about how the, the leader uh, reacted to this protest. She was uh, not happy. She thought she was uh, in charge, rocking along, and going to force this, um, this issue through, that they were going to have the extradition treaty. However, uh, when the protest started, this woman's name is Carrie Lam, this, the chief executive of Hong Kong. She started her first reaction, her first public statement, was to express sympathy to the crowd. You know, hey, you're, you're kind of really upset about this. Um, 
trying to placate the masses, telling them, you know, thanks for marching, uh, appreciate your participation, blah, blah, trying to just put them down and ignore them, you know, placate them with praises. That didn't work. The protesters flooded the main streets. Police opened fire with tear gas and rubber bullets. Then this chief executive, Lamb, Carrie Lamb, changed her tactics, and she scolded the demonstrators, comparing them to fussy children. Don't be fussy children. Don't act like a little kid and protest just because a new law is going to come in place. So the protesters got the protest crowd got so big they surrounded the building where the the whatever they call their legislature meets. So they couldn't even have the discussion about whether or not to pass this law, which is really. Yes, they have the right to say yes or no, but everyone recognizes China intends to take over Hong Kong. And this was a step along the way for China to assert its control um, over Hong Kong. So now, finally, Carrie Lam has agreed that to put the consideration of this extradition law on hold. So where we stand today is it's on hold, but the protesters are still not placated, still will not back down. Now they're saying she has to go, Carrie Lamb has to go, and the law must be permanently pushed away, permanently removed. We're not going to have that law in this country. We're not going to have this law that is going to say essentially that, that China can decide when they want to bring the uh, anyone in Hong Kong they want up to China for prosecution. One of the interesting things that emerged about this was that there is no one specific leader of this big movement in Hong Kong. There are actually 50, 50 different demonstrator groups that banded together. So there's not one person they can jail or arrest or, or you know, criticize or do whatever they would do to him. They've got actually a, a group thing going on, and the name of the group is the Civil Human Rights Front. Civil Human Rights Front, made up of 50 groups. Some of the groups are flat out, pure, you know, we want independence, we're not ever going to be part of China. Some, there are a lot of pro-democracy, demanding democracy, even in China, wanting China to open up and not be so dictatorial and tyrannical. So, you know, I'm going to close out this story about Hong Kong today just to say, this is the human spirit. This is a great thing. Countries in the world, all over the world, should be supporting the Hong Kong protesters because what they're really protesting is not just this particular extradition law, this proposed law that might force them to go to be sent up to China and prosecuted in some, you know, mockery of a serious trial, mockery of justice kind of trial, sent away to one of China's gulags and never heard from again, which is what these people actually really worry about in Hong Kong. They know what China's like and China's justice system is is just, it just deserves no respect and they don't want to have to be part of it. So it's a protest against the extradition law. But in a larger way, it's a protest against the very idea of communism and socialism. A protest against the very idea that people have to live the way the people in communist China have to live. This is a protest about freedom. It's a protest against tyranny, against repression, against what China represents to the world. So there's great value for countries in this world to speak up, to speak up in protest. So when China wants to do business all over the world, wants to have a contract with some other country, with their Huawei 5G or whatever it is they're trying to get a contract uh, to do, other countries need to be standing up against China. They need to be saying to China, you need to back off 
back off from Hong Kong. Leave them alone. They are not, they don't want your laws. They don't want to be part of your system. Leave them alone. The more countries that more publicly put pressure on China, the better it is not just to protect the Hong Kongers, as they're called, from this extradition law, but the larger sense of the world community standing up in favor of freedom and against the communist regime in China that is as you would know, if you listened to my show a few weeks ago, we had Gordon Chang on the show talking about China is trend, trending repressive. China is not moving toward freedom. They're not. They're moving toward more authoritarianism. In fact, Gordon Chang in the show used the word that China is actually trending not just toward authoritarianism, but actual flat-out totalitarianism. The world needs to push back in favor of freedom. It's a great it's a great window on the human spirit to watch the people in Hong Kong. They don't want to be controlled by China. Frankly, the Chinese people don't want to be controlled by the Chinese government, but they don't seem to have a way out yet. And then kind of a related topic, but I, I'm on this, um, this kind of socialism thing. You know, the reason, the very reason China has to be so repressive is because nobody would voluntarily choose to live under communism if they were given the choice of freedom. This is something lost in these world discussions about uh, various countries and their cultures. People don't want to live under communism. And all communism really is, it's a political system, but communism is the economic system of socialism with no way out. That's all communism is. It's a one-party state. It's socialism with guns. It's the economic system of socialism. The government's control of the economy. The government's control of industry. Communism is socialism with no way out or socialism with guns. So turning to the America, to United States of America, what's happening here in our country, it's the most amazing thing. Here we're watching protesters in Hong Kong standing up for freedom and at the same time, we're listening to Bernie Sanders and other Democrat socialists in this country turning to the idea, pushing socialism, a very popular idea, even in America's universities. And now I want to turn to the discussion of Oberlin, we, Oberlin College in Oberlin, Ohio. We talked about this a full week ago, I think it was, when, uh, as a quick summary of the facts, in Oberlin, Ohio, which uh, Oberlin College is the oldest uh, continuously functioning co-ed college, a liberal arts college in America. It's amazing. It's a very old place, uh, old uh, university. It has surrendered to the radical leftism that many other colleges have surrendered to in this world. So Oberlin had an incident involving a student who went to, this is a quickest summary before I tell you the, the update on this, quickest summary, an Oberlin student went to a local bakery called Gibson's Bakery and, and Goods or something, but Gibson's Bakery, and in the bakery he attempted to buy a bottle of wine with a fake ID. So, you know, he's not of age to buy wine, so he's got this fake ID. The uh, guy behind the counter recognized, and now nah, this, is, this is a fake ID. Didn't let him do it. But he noticed that the student had tucked stolen bottles of wine into his coat. He was attempting to shoplift, to leave uh, the, uh, the uh, store without paying for wine that he tucked into his coat. I think it was two bottles. So he calls attention to it. The student runs out, I guess drops the bottles on the ground, runs out, the uh, store guy runs after him and, and catches up with him. Once the store guy catches up with the shoplifter, there were two other students 
apparent accomplices of this one student who were waiting outside the store when they realized that the store, it wasn't the owner, it was whoever the clerk was that day, had a hold of the student who was shoplifting. These other two students who were his accomplice, the other student's accomplices, jumped on him. And so when the police arrived, the three students had the store clerk on the ground, on the sidewalk, punching him in the face. Police arrest all three. The students later pled guilty to shoplifting and uh, a bunch of other little charges. And they, they, they pled guilty to charges, including acknowledging that they were all shoplifting, they're all part of the effort, and included in their plea the statement that there was no racial profiling involved in their arrest. These three students happened to be black. But in between the time of the shoplifting and the time they were arrested, these students went back to Oberlin College and stirred up a hornet's nest in the college campus, essentially urging the Oberlin College community, the entire college, to engage in a massive uh, boycotting of Gus Gibson's bakery. So they had protests outside Gibson's Bakery with signs, you know, waving, this is racial profiling, racial discrimination, Gibson's engaged in racial profiling, blah, blah, blah. They put out uh, notices all over campus urging other campus groups to get involved. The student senate voted on some idiotic denouncement about racial profiling by Gibson's. And then one college administrator, a person high up in the administration of Oberlin, actually got involved supporting the students, not just encouraging them, not just encouraging them to, you know, protest if they thought that was right or to or something like that, but actually got involved agitating, encouraging the students to stand up against this Gibson's bakery based on this completely false argument that Gibson's had engaged in racial discrimination by not letting some kids shoplift from them. And so this administrator is handing out, she's outside the store, not on the college campus, in town in Oberlin, handing out cards, encouraging people to be part the protest boycott uh, Gibson's Bakery. So last week, the jury came back with an award. So the Gibson's Bakery, the owned a, a, a five generations, same family, numerous plaintiffs, essentially the owners of the bakery, sued Oberlin, Oberlin and, and Oberlin, the college itself, because its administrator was engaged in this whole boycott against them. And the jury came back with an $11 million verdict against the school. Well, it was really against this administrator named Raimundo, but the entire school, the school hold, uh, agreed to hold her harmless, so the school is going to pay whatever uh, judgment's made against the woman. But here are the new facts since then. A lot of new facts, and it ties into our theme of socialism today. First, the, um, there was a, then, the, we talked about the case on Monday, last Monday, Tuesday, there was the punitive phase of the trial. The $11 million was actually considered actual damages. The punitive damage phase is referring to the idea that the jury could consider whether the conduct by the school was so egregious that it was worthy of punitive damages, damages to punish the school for its bad behavior. The jury came back and said, yes, indeed, they are entitled uh, to punitive damages and awarded an additional $22 million against Oberlin. Part of what they, so, so this, they sit with a huge verdict against them. They have pledged they're going to go forward. They may appeal. Who knows? But I want to just tell you some facts that tie into our theme of how bad socialism is. But first, a few more things about Oberlin. Number one, Oberlin tried to in, uh, tried to solve the problem, tried to uh, reach out to Gibson's Bakery and essentially say, would you agree from now on 
that if any students commit shoplifting in your store, that you will just never call the police, just call the college. Let us deal with our students who are shoplifting in your store. Oberlin said, no. As a matter of fact, no. We're going to call the police because they are arrestable. They are adults. Number two, so Oberlin did, could not convince Gibson's Bakery to say, you know, we'll just call you. Gibson's Bakery was willing to drop the whole thing. You have to get this fact. Willing to drop the whole thing. If Oberlin would just put a letter out to their student body, their alumni, to all the people they've been complaining to about Gibson's, saying Gibson's did not commit racial profiling. Gibson's did not discriminate against these students because of race. That's what Gibson's wanted. They wanted their name cleared, and Oberlin College wouldn't do it. Now, folks, I got to tell you, the people at Oberlin making these decisions, they had to know at some point in the course of this litigation that the students did exactly what Gibson's Bakery said they did. They shoplifted. They tried to steal. One tried to steal wine, and they're willing to physically assault the store clerk who chases the guy out of the store. And but but Oberlin College was so much on their high horse, so defensive of this um, of these students, they would not would not settle the case. But here's what I want to tell you a little bit about how this ties in um, to socialism and understanding what Oberlin College is really all about. Uh, they had a, um, they, Oberlin has a reputation for uh, the, being social justice warriors. A lot of ridiculous stories, a lot, a lot of stories um, out of, of Oberlin College. Um, one was that the Oberlin College students banded together several years ago and they demanded that the university suspend midterms, no more midterms, the students demanding the school, and that no one can get less than a C. Like you can't get an F or a D. You can only get an A, B, or C. And I want to tie that idea to socialism. These students are saying, regardless of how we perform, regardless of how hard we work, we get paid with a passing grade, even though we might deserve an F, even though we never showed up for class, even though we flunked all the tests, even though we never turned the papers. Whatever we did, we still get paid. Like paid, we still get a grade. This is socialism. This is the socialist mindset that had weaved its way into the student body. This is, at most of this was happening starting in 2014. These students were saying, we don't really have to work. We don't have to do schoolwork to get a good grade which is the same socialist argument, we don't have to work, no matter how hard we work, no matter how, whether we work at all, don't, you know, we work a little bit, we do a bad job, good job, we still get paid. This is a socialist mission of the radical left in this country and around the world is to divorce the connection between hard work and reward. It's a socialist mission. Secondly, there were, there's a track record of the Oberlin students. In fact, one person who wrote about it called it the cultural rot of Oberlin. There was a track record of students shoplifting in the community of Oberlin. Shoplifting was rampant. 
shoplifting was among Oberlin students so consequential um, they acted and the term one person used they acted as predators on the larger community they acted like we're here you have money we want things and we you need to just give them to us just give us what we need this is again I want to tell the, the, the uh, kinds of behavior um, that Oberlin was apparently aware of and tolerating the number of arrests of Oberlin students in the community. The, the, in fact, I don't have it handy, but the, the percentage of people arrested in the Oberlin community who were Oberlin College students was something like 72%. I mean, kids were going to town shoplifting and getting caught. Now I want to go back to how Oberlin defended itself in this litigation. Again, this ties to socialism. Oberlin's answer to why they defended the students who were shoplifting. They're saying Gibson's Bakery, this is the Oberlin College statement to the New York Times. Gibson's Bakery, Bakery's archaic chase and detain policy regarding suspected shoplifters was the catalyst for the protests. The guilt or innocence of the students is irrelevant to both the root cause of the protests and to this litigation. The college is okaying shoplifting. They're saying, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what they did, whether they shoplifted or they didn't shoplift, we're just mad because Someone had the audacity, one of the clerks at Gibson's had the audacity to chase this kid down and say, you're not leaving, you just tried to shoplift. This, this mindset of Oberlin that has students rampantly shoplifting in town, has Oberlin in litigation after being the public being aware of how they conduct themselves, Oberlin's message through the New York Times was, this is archaic, it's archaic that a store would possibly defend itself when students shoplift. And here's my last tie on this, or maybe my next to last tie on socialism. When you teach students that the, the root, the root, the, the ideological root, the economic root, the moral roots of socialism are simply, is simply greed. It is coveting. It is planting the seed in the minds of people you deserve other people's stuff and you deserve it for free when you're taught that when you get that mindset from the left-wing academia in this country Oberlin and others that it is wrong that people are rich it's wrong that stores have things that you want it's wrong that you can't afford things that you want to have you're legitimizing kids shoplifting and these aren't kids, I'm sorry, young adults, they're in college, shoplifting. The shoplifting rampant, the, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the epidemic of shoplifting at Oberlin is tied to that socialist mentality that tells people, go ahead and steal things. It's not right that you don't have everything you want right now. It's all right. You go ahead and go take it because you really kind of deserve it. That is what Oberlin 
has taught these kids this pervasive, not just Oberlin, but the socialist mindset that we're going to talk more and more about in the show. And, and we're going to end with Bernie Sanders again and his whack job speech he did last week at George uh, Mason, George Washington University, where he's telling people that what freedom means is you should have whatever you need, whether you can afford it or not. Everything should be given to you. That is Bernie Sanders' argument. That's the argument of socialism. That's an underlying mindset in the Oberlin uh, adventure. There were a lot of other... Um, and um, there are other statistics related to Oberlin and the behavior of their students. I guess I can't regale you with all of them. Uh, oh, but actually one good thing that got in during the trial, just that it was a great thing for Gibson's Bakery, Oberlin College tried to keep out of the, they tried to block as evidence in the trial when Gibson's Bakery is suing Oberlin, Oberlin College tried to keep out of the trial the fact that at Gibson's Bakery, their arrest record for students for shoplifting was not at all proof of racial profiling. In fact, proof of exactly the opposite. At Gibson's Bakery, 40 were arrested for shoplifting in the previous year. That's a lot. What are these kids doing anyway? They're at college. They have everything they need there. But okay, Gibson's Bakery, 40 arrested, 32 were white, 80% of them were white, six were African-American, 15%, two were Asian, 5%, pretty much matching the city's racial makeup. There wasn't even a factual basis for the argument that, that Gibson's Bakery was, um, Gibson's Bakery was engaged in racial profiling. But the real kind of, harm to America out of the Oberlin case, at least as it's been handled so far by the Oberlin administration, is they're still telling these students, you shouldn't have been arrested just because you stole. You're entitled to make a, a completely false smear job accusation against a local business, try to drive it out of business, try to prevent people from shopping there just because you're, you were embarrassed that you got arrested. You don't have to have facts on your side. You don't have to have truth on your side because you feel that way, because you felt that way, because you look at this and you're kind of embarrassed for the students, then you can just let this go. This, my friends, was so egregious. And so far, the Oberlin uh, county jury has really, is, it, Oberlin is in Lamar County, whatever it's called, the county where Oberlin, Oberlin College is. The county is made up of jurors who are Heartland America, who are sitting looking at this administration, presenting witnesses, saying idiosities, uh, such as, you know, the whole problem was that they chased him down. And they had the administrator who was accused saying basically, well, I just want to encourage them to understand their free speech rights and to be active expressing their free speech rights. So your free speech right to make a protest based on a lie and protest outside of a business with the goal of closing it, that administrator is claiming that constitutes good leadership by Oberlin. Folks, this is a great story, a great case, and maybe a great opportunity for Oberlin and other colleges to rethink how they approach their student body. Like, who, as one of the lawyers for Gibson's Bakery said afterwards, basically had a statement saying, you know, what really the message to Oberlin is, is it's time for the grown-ups to be in charge again. It's time to stop agreeing that these 18 to 22-year-old students have any say in how Oberlin's run 
18 to 20 year old students get to decide to engage in this with no with not only that the school didn't didn't intervene in any way they encouraged it they viewed it as they were enabling them to express their first amendment rights this my friends is a great case for america oberlin apparently is going to appeal i hope they do because i do think i don't i don't know what they're thinking what jury what maybe some liberal appellate court judge will find some technical reason to reverse it but these plaintiffs had their day in court america has seen the inner workings of the oberlin college administration this is a great day for truth to begin to have the light of truth shine at oberlin and really for the american people to recognize the crazy that has invaded america's college campuses Okay, so one other thing on socialism today. This is my deep dive Monday. I love picking a deep dive topic, and today my deep dive topic is socialism. There was a great piece written in the USA Today newspaper um, magazine, which uh, newspaper, which was by a guy who grew up in Venezuela. It was mind blowing, and his basic message. His he wrote his article calling it. It was an opinion piece. Venezuela was my home, and socialism destroyed it. Slowly. It will destroy America, too. These are the kind of stories that every kid on college campuses in America should have to read. This guy uh, happened to come to America, lucky for him, to go to college, but his name is Daniel DiMartino, and he wrote about growing up um, in Venezuela and how, at, to start growing up in Venezuela, because they had communists take over the country, you know, the communists took over ownership of the grocery stores to make sure they were fair and everybody had their, you know, had uh, whatever they needed, which resulted in starvation and poverty and lack and empty st store shelves. So he talked about, he remembered the first time it ever happened to him, he was 14 years old, um, he was 15 years old, in the year 2014, he's in Caracas, he goes to the grocery store, waits in line for hours to finally get the small amount of rations the government permits his family to have, gets the checkout counter, doesn't have his national ID card issued by the government, can't have the groceries, and can't come back for a week. So this is an example of government-controlled economy, socialist-controlled economy. This was Venezuela in 2015. A kid can't buy groceries. 2014, a kid can't buy groceries. He talked about the way that the communist, the socialist government, because Venezuela, again, is socialist. They're not really communist. They, they are socialist, they say. So he talked about the things as government took over these various industries and items that they needed, what happened to the country. So he talked about how the government had taken over the um, electrical industry, the power industry, in an effort, said the government, to make electricity free. So to make it free, the government took over control of the power companies, resulting in blackouts for them, lack of waters. He said lack of water. The government took it over, electricity in 2007. By 2016, his home lost power roughly once a week. As to water, far, far worse. The government took over. The, they were helping you know, distribute water. So they ended up with uh, even worse. Their family didn't have running water. It used to be for only about one day per month. But as the years passed, we sometimes went several weeks straight without running water because the socialist government is controlling distribution of water. For the water problem, the socialist government blamed an iguana, 
not even kidding, right-wing sabotage, and even the weather that they in Venezuela could not get water into the homes in their country. Venezuela having the large, and by the way, Venezuela as a per capita issue has the most water available per citizen of any country in the world, more than the U.S., but couldn't get water, couldn't in an organized manner, get water to the people in their homes. He went on to talk about the proven oil reserves, largest in the, re the largest in the world, fresh water resources, blah, blah, blah. The real reason, he writes, my family went without water and electricity was a socialist economy instituted by uh, Chavez and Maduro. He talks about the welfare program. They had ever-growing welfare programs. Sound familiar? They had a new minimum wage, kept increasing minimum wage. Okay, one more thing. And they kept nationalizing all sorts of industries, creating a colossal government deficit, which the central bank solved by printing money. This is sounding so Obama-esque here, folks. Um, and then he said, um, he talked about his own parents who were very successful they had, for two jobs. They could have a nice life by the end of the time before his parents fled uh, Venezuela and went to Spain, uh, between the two of them working, they could, they could earn enough uh, to buy about six pounds of chicken an entire month. That's what they could afford to buy with two people working full time. And this guy is very clever. He's tying. He's saying, look, you go guaranteed minimum wage and you keep raising the minimum wage and you promise things for free and you're going to do everything for free and you're going to give things to people for free. All it does is lead to misery, starvation. And if you, by the way, folks, I cannot encourage you wrong, strongly enough to read this story on my website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage, under shows, list of links, this story is in there. This guy is, it's like he's screaming from the rooftops in writing this, watching America get duped by the Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, frankly, Ilhan Omar, and others talking about the beauties of socialism. And he's saying, no, I've lived it. I know it. It is horrible. He deliberately, he specifically calls out Medicare for all, recipe for disaster for our healthcare system, the Green New Deal, which is the mass, the Green New Deal is nothing other than the socialist takeover of America. And he calls it that. He says, you're getting sold all of this stuff, just like I did in Venezuela. Don't fall for it. That is this young man's message. And I'm going to do one more point in this story. Then I want to turn to talk about our friend Bernie Sanders and his speech last week at George Washington. But, you know, what one um, what happens in selling socialism in countries is people try, they sell it in terms that sound friendly and nice and good. Who could be against that? It sounds so nice. They're going to make electricity fair. They're going to make water distribution fair. They're going to make wages fair. So the government's going to control it. That's what socialism is. But socialism creeps its way into America. You know, that expression, a thousand cuts, death by a thousand cuts. Because every step we make along the way, surrendering to what some leftist argues is somehow a way to make America fairer, is a step toward the path of Venezuelan socialist misery. And now I want to play, and there are a lot of examples I could give, but I want to get to playing the clip of Bernie Sanders. I'm just going to play one brief clip. In America, we had a woman, actually, I'm going to hit the uh, Denver City Council person. In Denver, this is a woman who ran and won for city council, and she is a flat-out communist. Here's her clip, if we can play that. 
in late phase capitalism and we know it doesn't work and we've got to move into something new. And I believe in community ownership of land, labor, resources, and distribution of those resources. And so whatever that morphs into, I think is what will serve community the best. And I'm excited to usher it in by any means necessary. Okay. This is what this this woman's name, by the way, is Candy C. DeBaca, and she actually won a seat on the Denver City Council. She is using the communist language by any means necessary, and she's telling you, she's telling America, in the face of Venezuela collapsing, the Cubans are starving, the Chinese wanted to get the heck out of there, and no one has enough in China, and she's telling you in America. Capitalism is failing. This is this is insane level assessment of the world, insane level le assessment of truth, but she's succeeding. She got elected to the city council in Denver, and we have we have the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez continuing to spout socialism as though she's the most brilliant and it's the greatest system ever, and Bernie Sanders is doing it. And that, my friends, is the last segment I want to get to today. Last week. Bernie Sanders gave a speech at George Washington University. At that speech, he gave his spiel about, are you really free? And this is gonna be a core issue to understand what we Americans define as freedom. Let me play what Bernie Sanders had to say, what he said freedom is, here you go. What I believe is that the American people deserve freedom, true freedom. Freedom is an often used word, but it is time that we took a hard look at what that word actually means. Ask yourself, what does it really mean to be free? Are you truly free if you are unable to go to a doctor when you are sick or face financial bankruptcy when you leave the hospital? Are you truly free if you cannot afford the prescription drugs you need in order to stay alive? Are you truly free when you spend half of your limited income on housing and are forced to borrow money from a payday lender at 200% interest rates? Are you truly free if you are 70 years old and forced to work because you lack a pension or enough money to retire? Are you truly free if you are unable to go to a college or a trade school because your family lacks the income? Are you truly free if you are forced to work 60 or 80 hours a week because you cannot find a job that pays you a living wage? Are you truly free if you are a mother with a newborn baby, but you are forced to go back to work immediately after the birth of that child because you lack paid family leave? Are you truly free if you are a small business owner or a family farmer who is driven out of business by the monopolistic practices of big business? Are you truly free if you are a veteran who has put his or her life on the line to defend this country, and tonight will be sleeping out on the streets. No. To me, the answer to those questions in the wealthiest nation on earth is no. Under those conditions, you are not truly free. 
Folks, this might be the single most important political speech given by a leftist in this country ever. It is really is vitally important to understand what Bernie Sanders is saying and what he's offering to you as a solution is vital to understand. Bernie Sanders is not saying, hey, I'm a multi-trillionaire. Let me pay for you to have all of the things he just listed. Let me, Bernie Sanders, pay out of my own money the paid leave for every woman who wants to stay home with her child and uh, all of the litany of things he listed. Bernie Sanders is not offering his own money. He is offering to steal other people's money through a totalitarian style economic system that reorganizes wealth, takes away money from people who work to earn it, to give away to people according to what he says are the most important things to be to be handed out. He is he is selling his socialism. He is selling his free things. He is selling his campaign on the idea that you are entitled to be have handed to you everything you need. That's what he's saying freedom is. Freedom and his definition is somehow you are a helpless individual. The country's full, filled with helpless individuals who all must sit back and wait for the government to give you everything you need. And that constitutes freedom. He is calling communism freedom. You have to start to get that. He's calling socialism freedom. When he says everything he just listed and probably everything else you can ever think of you'd ever need, you're entitled to be given that. He's telling you, you, he is telling you that communism is freedom. He's telling you socialism is freedom. He's telling you he has no faith in your ability as an individual to find your path, your way forward, work hard, earn money, have a job, you know, have a job, earn money, create a life for yourself, buy the things you need for yourself. No, he has a government-controlled economy as he's equating that with freedom. Folks, this is insanity, insanity in light of what we're watching in the world, in Venezuela, in Hong Kong for that matter, and in China. This is a guy telling you that socialism, which has never thrived anywhere it's tried, is somehow going to thrive because he's the smartest guy around. And if you just give him all the power, you he will steal through confiscatory tax measures enough money from everybody else to give you what you deserve as defined by him what you deserve and that is in his worldview freedom there was two great quotes i'll close the show with today we're going to dissect this bernie sanders speech a lot more in this show because this sadly is alluring to ignorant young people who are didn't study economics 101 and don't really understand freedom Bernie Sanders is stirring up in the minds of those students the expectation you deserve to have the government give you everything that you need. And the government, may I remind you, has no money. The government never has any money. It doesn't earn money. It doesn't make money. Government only has the money it takes from other people through taxes. So he's promising you other people's money. And that constitutes, in his worldview, freedom. It is 
upside down, backwards, crazy, but it is vital that all of us who love freedom and love this country start speaking up and exposing what Bernie Sanders is saying, is selling you, is not freedom, it is tyranny. Last quote before we wrap up our show. There is a um, writing by a, a great, great book, The Road to Serfdom. If you haven't read it, you should, by F.A. Hayek. And he talked about two quotes I want to um, read to you. Democratic socialism, the great utopia of the last few generations, is not only unachievable, but that to strive for it produces something utterly different. To strive for democratic socialism produces something utterly different, the very destruction of freedom itself. As has been aptly said, what has always made the state a hell on earth has been precisely that man has tried to make it this heaven. And Hayek goes on, a further point should be made here. Collectivism means the end of truth. To make a totalitarian system function efficiently is not enough that everybody should be forced to work for the ends selected by those in control. It is essential that the people should come to regard the ends that those in control set up like Bernie Sanders wants to be decide as their own. This is brought about by propaganda and by complete control of all sources of information. Point being, when the propagandists, the leftists like Bernie Sanders, telling you what you should get for free, they have to use propaganda to make everybody who is going to have to submit to this collectivist, send in your money, work as hard as you can, but have nothing to show for it, that system, people send their money in because propaganda convinces them that this is indeed what they really want, what's really fair. I'm going to come back to Bernie Sanders a bunch more times, but I'll, t I'll close by saying on him, he did back in the 1970s, by the way, absolutely advocate for socializing all industries in America. I'll come to that next week. But I'm going to close today with our uh, what we always do at the end of the show. I want to tell you, tell you why all that matters to you. Fathers matter. Research shows a father in the home is overwhelmingly a positive for family and cultural health. Daughters less prone to promiscuity and other destructive behavior. Sons thrive with a male role model. Often wander and get into trouble without one. Do not be silenced or intimidated by anti-family nonsense, tax, welfare, and other policies which deny and diminish the value of a father and a mother in the home are destructive and deny common sense. We all know this, speak up. The Hong Kong protests, two million protesters in Hong Kong is like 90 million protesters in America. Extradition law is merely the trigger. Hong Kongers have lived in freedom and they know it's opposite in, is communist, the, is in communist totalitarian China. They are choosing freedom and they're gonna fight for it. America and all of Western civilization must keep the light on China's abusive behavior and resist it. And even dictators must treat, tread carefully when protests achieve such scale. Next one, the inevitable rot of socialism, Oberlin College culture. No midterms, no grades. We get, no matter what we do, we deserve these grades. No reportable crime of shoplifting. That's what the school tried to get for them. No connection between behavior and reward or punishment. It means there's no right or wrong. Envy and covetousness is righteous and expected. That's why they think it's okay to shoplift. An inevitable result of socialism. Loss of law, order, and social cohesion. Next one, inevitable rot of socialism. Why it matters in Venezuela. Fairness 
is the word infiltrator that opens up arguments for government control, national energy companies, national health care, easy targets, easy capitulation. Countries capitulate and then they can't get their freedom back. The result is always greater inequity and greater iniquity as those in charge inevitably protect themselves and enrich themselves. Coercion and corruption is rampant. A culture based on envy and covetousness is socialism. It is bitter, demoralized, and can only be held together by force and fear. Last slide on the inevitable rot of socialism, Bernie's misconception. Okay, that's a nice word. Misconception is a nice word of freedom. America was founded on faith in the individual, empowered by freedom and the innate aspiration for a better life. America was not founded on humans as victims. It was not founded on collectivism. Freedom means you can work to overcome life's challenges and be rewarded for your effort and success. Freedom does not mean government exists to assure you that life is easy. Bernie Sanders doesn't get it. He doesn't get America and he doesn't get freedom. And that, my friends, I went a little long today. Love talking with you every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, right here on America Can We Talk. Talk to you tomorrow. Can we talk truth about America? Can you-